0: The Partially Examined Life depends on your support. To find out how to do that in ways that are cheap or even free, go to PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support.
1: Hey, you're listening to Partially Examined Life. This is episode 156, part two. We're talking about the political life. Our reading is nothing. You should definitely listen to part one first, where we were just pundits for quite a long time. So I'm hoping I can redirect us a little bit from consideration of these specific things that are going on in politics, although we can still keep bringing those up, back to the issue of how has studying philosophy, studying political philosophy, prepared us in any way to make these sort of analysis that we've been making to make more intelligent political decisions to act as citizens in any way. One of the points we made in our very first episode was... It seems like philosophers who study ethics aren't necessarily more ethical. Well, does studying politics make us more rational in our political assessments or anything like that? Well,
2: that's not the way I took your question, Mark. Maybe your take is more interesting. Well, I don't know if that's true, but I would say that having studied political philosophy infuses the way I think about politics and the way I think about thinking about political questions, structure of government and what governments are for and what the relationship between individuals are and communities are or the ways in which those relationships play out and how they are managed and what kind of structures help manage them well and whether those structures ought to be for the good of anything or whether they should be merely to prevent People from annihilating one another. And that's sort of the minimal good. Whether we should have any kind of aspirations for our relations between each other and the kinds of government structures and cultural structures we build or try to build. So for me, all that stuff is part of it, which is why in the first part, I was talking about something like a public good. I think that orientation isn't merely topical, but is born out of both thinking about how government works and ought to work and the kinds of structures that we have in our government as American aspiration, or at least my interpretation of that, to preserve minority voices while having a government that functions for the good of the whole and things that are maybe specific and topical, like traditions in government organization, but that are also the habits and mores of our governmental institutions. The thing I was going to respond to about what Seth was talking about was to agree with some of that diagnosis. You know, I would point to, maybe Seth had this in mind, you know, the gerrymandering of districts in Wisconsin, which has some similarities to what was done in North Carolina. And taking that as, yeah, I'm sure we can point to that as a particular problem. I read that as an indicator of, two things. One, there's a crass preservation of an individual party, but that has, I want to call it a theoretical consequence, but that's not exactly what I mean. It has a consequence of subverting a notion of the idea of a government as being for the people that are being governed. And when those very structures that balance one another and that subvert the ebb and flow of power... I agree. That's when it becomes really, at its most disturbing, because it doesn't allow for the activity of the society to flourish and make itself heard. Its very manifestation doesn't reflect the society. Now, that, to me, goes to the question of how government ought to be structured. So. I think it's a combination of theoretical questions and particular questions.
0: So I think that Dylan, yeah, you're bringing up the question of the public good as sort of a standard of for evaluating some of these questions is a good start because it sort of gets at a fundamental divide in philosophically in how we approach some of these questions. So it's possible that that points to a sort of utilitarian conception of evaluating political claims by asking about the happiness or utility for the largest number of citizens, let's say. Although, I mean, I acknowledge it can mean other things as well. But the point is that whatever conception of that public good you have, the public good is at tension with concept of rights. So that's uh, one of the basic dilemmas, and we see in specific cases this problem comes up time and time again. And so for some philosophers, the public good can seem like public enemy number one. So for instance, de Beauvoir talks about the ways in which the good of the collective can sort of become a tyrannical justification for violating the rights of people. Or de Tocqueville's talk of a tyranny of the majority and things like that. So all I'm pointing to, I'm not disagreeing with the importance of that concept. What I'm saying is it immediately leads us into these thorny philosophical problems about the way we evaluate
2: political claims the public good can't be the only criterion. I didn't mean to imply that. The reason I bring it up is because it feels like that notion of what brings us together seems sorely missing. And I think it's obviously true and I it's one of the brilliant things about the conversations around the founding is that balance of trying to figure out a way to walk through that tension between rights, and public good, you know, the things that bring us together, but that also allow us to be individuals, you know, that tension between being a community and being individual citizens and having different parts of our community that are not always in agreement with one another, yet we need to have a way of being a community. It is and can be very fragile, and I think either one of those can walk across the other. The conception in Sandel's
0: terms, we talked about it with the Sandel episode, is how thick or thin that conception of the good is, the good that's implemented at the level of the state. So at its most minimal right, it could just be a sort of framework that guarantees the rights of different groups in society to exercise their thick conception of the good, which may include religion and other things like that, as long as they don't violate anyone else's rights. It could be that sort of kind of libertarian ideal or we might think that a state has to do more than that, that they have to guarantee something to do with community or something to do with identity and so on.
2: You know, maybe I'm actually thinking about public good and something a little bit differently than this. And I want to use the instance of gerrymandering to bring this up, right? Is I would say, look, maybe this is more of a, a Rawlsian point of view. Like if I didn't know where I was going to end up in the Lottery of life and the structure of society. What would I want to have that society to be structured like? And so if I'm going to have a representative government based upon districts that have, have certain amounts of population, it would seem to me that some kind of pretty naive balancing on, you know, a combination of natural and city boundaries would be the way you would do it, where you would be looking to make sure you have a mix of people and that it would be a virtue of that that you would have district after district in which political seats were competitive and that would be in fact a desirable outcome that would lead to a government and laws that would be on average better for everybody because you would not be concentrating power and one of the another effect of this gerrymandering is you, in fact you accentuate the infighting in individual parties so i firmly believe that you know all of the hyper conservatism and the people accusing each other of being rhinos and stuff like that and tests of purity They go hand in hand with the kind of gerrymandering of districts that happens where you have people fighting over on whether or not they're the pure representation of their individual parties. And I think that that's bad. That's not good for decisions, for laws, for things that are... And that's what I mean by the public good, not the sense of public good of... That crass utilitarian notion, or even what's going to, I'm going to, how to force somebody to be good. I mean, creating conditions that allow people to flourish with their own individual ambitions as much as possible, and also things that allow for basically good decision making to be made that represent as many people as possible. Putting aside whether or not it's good for them, but just getting as much decision-making in as possible. That kind of public good.
0: To me, it's a very difficult question. It's one of the things that makes politics very difficult is, again, how thick or thin to make that conception. I mean, there are things we can all agree on about procedural things and, you know, gerrymandering is bad and bribery is bad and things that sort of fundamentally interfere with the machinery, you know, of democracy and of a republic. But then there, even when that machinery is functioning well, we still have some very difficult problems because there are some issues on which you obviously you can't satisfy everyone. I mean, if a certain segment of the population thinks abortion is murder yeah. and the other segment thinks it's prohibiting abortion is really a profound violation of the rights of women, then you have a serious moral <laughs> dilemma That and it's always going to be a problem. And then the nature, you know, the philosophical nature of that, it means there's no good – Answer, right? There is no answer. When when does a fetus become a person? When does something that starts out as a clump of cells. There is no firm dividing line when you step over into personhood. And so the philosophical unanswerability of that question lends itself to the political, inevitable, chronic political dispute. So things like that. And then again, the conflicts between rights and the public good, things that you have to do, you know, the kinds of things we saw in Nozick with libertarianism. Well, A libertarian might want to say, no, you don't have the right to tax me and take my money for the sake of alleviating the plight of the poor, something like that. That would be the extreme position. They would see that as a violation of rights. In many cases, trying to foster the public good is at tension with the most kind of radical conception of
1: one's rights. I want to bring Seth back into the conversation. When you were talking about this before, Seth, about the North Carolina the Republican Party, just disliking women. It's not just the way you were characterizing their stance. It's not just pro-life. It's actively disliking women. And to me, that kind of rhetoric, even if it's true, I guess uh, to me that's the kind of analysis that I might give of an individual, right? Hey, individual, you're making this argument, but I can see from your body language that this is actually how you feel. But as applied to groups... So this is sort of one of the upshots of trying to think philosophically about politics. Like I was saying about Wes's analyses of, of the psychology of the mass, I'm very suspicious of that. It ends up turning into a skepticism. So methodologically, I feel like when I am trying to characterize the other side's position on something, even if I want to say that it is fundamentally mistaken or ignorant or something – I would kind of go out of my way not to characterize it, if possible, as being unpleasant or something like, talk to me about how your rhetoric and your philosophy go together.
3: Okay, so we mentioned that we were doing punditry, right? And I told you guys (laughs) already that I recognize that I'm very much inside of a certain bubble, and the rhetoric in defense of women, the way that I employed it in that little rant, Is definitely, it comes from that place. Now, if I instead try to say, okay, well, what could be informing this? What is the philosophical position? Let's not call it philosophical. What's the ideological position where you maintain that a fetus in development is a thing with rights? First of all, where does that come from? Where does the sanctity of life come from? So that's the first question I would ask. Is it a religious thing? Of course. Right? Is it a religious thing? Well, it's not a political thing. It's not something that comes from the founding of the, it's not from the constitution. It's not something that comes from humanism. It comes from somewhere and it comes from a particular religious background. So at the very first level, we can say, all right, do we know that all religions or just, is just certain religions that prohibit abortion. And even within those religions, is it every single sect in that religion that does that? No, it's a certain brand. There are certain branches Right, certain denominations, and others that don't. If you're doing that, you're coming from a place of wanting to assert a religious position through the mechanism of the state. That's the first thing. If you believe that, in fact, it's the case that these fetuses have rights in the political sense or in the legal sense based on your moral justification or your ethical justification, religious justification, I should say, then you should just be absolutely for banning abortion, which some of the worst people are. So these laws where they're incrementally trying to outlaw it at certain stages and the fetal heartbeat and all that is just crass maneuvering to try to manipulate inside of the legal system. Sure. But my point is, we could, I could go on and on and on, going all the way down the line. Let's say, oh, well, you know, if you get raped, then the rapist has rights over the child in 38 states. That kind of stuff clearly to me is an indication that the people who drafted those laws, maybe hate's not the right word, maybe they just think women are property, maybe they think women are second class citizens, maybe they think it's their right or their religious duty to manifest these laws. Let's just say this, they clearly don't show as much care and concern and compassion for the women as they do for the fetus or the males involved or the state or whatever, So I feel, to a certain extent, this is my irrationality coming out. This is where I'm not rational, I suppose, or where I'm not a reasonable self-interested person, because this is not my self-interest, right? In a certain sense, it's not in my self-interest to be concerned about these things, but it strikes me as just a crass maneuver to bring religion into the state and just shows so little compassion And that's what makes me the most angry, is that I just feel like there's very little compassion and an attempt to try to resolve whatever issues might be. Like, why is this happening in the first place? Like, if women are getting pregnant and they don't want to be pregnant, why don't we just help them not get pregnant? That's a rational way to solve the problem, but that's not what's happening.
0: That's a good pragmatic argument. Which is in a different category than the other arguments which characterize people as being bad people or something like that. Yes, when you think about is misogyny overall motive and the idea of women's sexual purity and the kind of horror of that, the impurity reflected in a pregnancy that would be terminated because the sex wasn't for the sake of procreation, those sorts of ideas are there in some cases but you have to get inside of the head of the opposition and then you can see that it's they're not just that their position isn't completely implausible we have tremendously protective instincts towards infants and at some point a fetus starts to look like an infant and of course most of us would recoil and horror at infanticide but the idea that abortion is allowed 10 minutes before while it's in the womb is less offensive to a lot of us and it's that kind of... Conflicts. So, for even for those of us who are pro-choice, I think you can recognize that the position of the opposition—it's not completely irrational. It's not completely evil. And then they would accuse you of many of the same things that you're accusing them of. Like they would say, "I can't believe the lack of empathy of someone who would let women kill babies just because they didn't want to take a pregnancy determination." Not that I, you know, want to have this conversation about abortion, but the larger idea that I'm expressing is that I think it helps to, in in any case where we get into this mode of discourse, where the other side is just, they're motivated by bad, even if we think they're mistaken, we have to try and get into their heads. They think they have that self-righteous feeling too, right? So we have to keep that in in mind. And then we're also in this epistemological predicament where, well, the feeling of self-righteousness isn't evidence for anything, because they have that too. They have that in spades, just as much as we do. So we can't ever appeal to that feeling. We have to be on guard against saying, well, my level of moral outrage is somehow evidence for something when it's very clearly it's not. So that's just the larger point I wanted to...
3: Right, and here's the difference. The difference is I accept the fact that you can level that accusation against me and I'm ready to have a conversation about the justification and the argument. What I have not done is used legal and political levers... To mandate that abortion be legal in every single state and maneuver the system in such a way that I make it impossible for there to be any repercussions or for there to be any discussion around this. And that again comes back to what I was saying is I realize where you guys are trying to go with this and I don't want to walk down this path too much further, but that if I come with an open mind and an open heart to try to have a reasoned discussion, do you think, looking at the political landscape as it is now, or as it has been for a long time, that goodwill for the purposes of compromise for better governing the country has been the aim of either side, but specifically the side that has been politically dominant for the better half of, I don't know, two decades now?
0: I think the larger question there is, you seem to be asking whether or not we should try to engage in sort of persuasive rational discourse as
3: a political means when the whole landscape is so irrational? Is that the question? Or You just asked me to try to understand the position of the other side. The only purpose for doing that, are one of two things. One is to try to find a way to subvert it, or the other is to come into rational contact, uh, rational discussion around it, because you need to create the conditions for having a productive discourse by empathizing with and understanding the opposite side.
0: Well, I think there are two things. Yeah, it could be for subversion purposes. But for one thing, it makes politics less distressing. If you think people are just motivated by something evil, let's say, that's a very distressing idea that makes it hard to act politically except to sort of use force of some kind, I think, to suppress them. Yes, the landscape is always very irrational and people are very irrational. But I think actual persuasion, actual attempts at persuasive discourse are far more effective than I think most people give them credit for. In fact, I think it would have, in this election, I think it would have been more effective, for instance, if Clinton, instead of just focusing on Trump is this, Trump is that, Trump is this, just focus on offering those arguments, which I know a lot of people thought she did and that voters weren't really interested in that. But there's an art to persuasion as well that involves kind of a mix of rationality and emotion. So I think not only is it the ethical thing to do, but I also think it's the politically, it's the effective thing to do. And I think it it's really, it's kind of a necessary component for a healthy, politically healthy society is people who take the discourse seriously and are willing to engage in persuasion, even when the other side is misbehaving like hell, taking that higher ground and not as a form of self-sacrifice. And so for instance, here's an example. I, I, have very conservative relatives that were very anti-gay marriage, they're very religious, and you would think that they're completely unmovable on this subject. Well they are unmovable because most people, you know, in the typical scenarios where most people just simply call them bigots for having that position. And this was actually years ago, before it was such a you know, so even Obama was in some sense again against gay marriage. And I don't know how I ended up in the email thread, but I made a very kind of philosophical appeal to their conscience and their sense of empathy and didn't call them names. And you'd be shocked at how responsive people are to that, even people who have very rigid,
3: religiously-based opinions. Okay. So let me say that with the exception of this discussion that we're having right now, when I speak publicly, I talk about... Empathy and compassion, and I try to encourage people to be open minded, and I do all those things. And when I'm having conversations with regular other people and individuals, that is the approach I take. And I even write letters here in Texas to Senator Ted Cruz. And I say, please consider that when you pass these laws, you are denying the rights of women, that I ask you to to think carefully about making these things. And he sends me a nice letter back that says, I'm very committed to protecting the rights of the unborn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm telling you is that, and this is what I think you're absolutely right as far as the election was concerned. Well, first of all, I'm not even sure, I don't know that Clinton, how redeemable Clinton could possibly have been in having discussions post election with other people, I was unaware for, I immediately after the election, I went on this vacation that I go to every year with some guy friends here. We go to the ranch out, you know, in the West Texas and there were three Clinton voters and three Trump voters. And we had quite a few conversations that I struggled with while we were out there. But that conversation and in following conversations, the amount of antipathy towards Hillary Clinton was way underestimated by me. But She certainly would have done much better by focusing on the issues that were concerned and trying to talk to the voters that Obama successfully spoke to, for sure. Donald Trump is, he's a bully and he's a baiter. That's what he does. He baits you into coming after him and you can't win that game with him. So that was just a fail. She failed on many, many counts during this election. So I completely agree with that. But I would like to have the discourse with other people who are of, I guess I'm struggling with finding a way to think that the politicians who are employing these tactics and have this agenda and work inside of the machine are of the same goodwill as your conservative relatives, who you can approach in that way.
0: I think it's about persuading people around you and about persuading voters, ultimately, if you have a position to talk to them. Most of us don't. But So I don't see politicians as really the targets of those persuasive efforts myself, unfortunately. So they're going to be representing some pre-established position.
1: The whole point is just get them out of power. Well, yeah, I felt like when I put my foot last year in the whole social justice thing and why we're not covering more women that our attempt in this format, you know, we have people who are willing to sit and listen to us for 2 hours and I thought that would be something that you could then make an argument and express something and try to like be reasonable and so even if people disagree with you then like, okay, well, I see where you're coming from, and it would require more than simply listening to us in a one-way conversation, you know, voice some kind of argument, you know, that's not particularly well thought out, that was devised on the spot, etc. The trends are what they are. The opinions are what they are out there in terms of if you're in a position like that, it's so much easier to gauge the pulse of what people actually already think and at least start from that point of view, even if you want to nudge them in some direction, than to actually try to express in a reasoned way why you disagree with some prominent trend. So yeah, I think I disagree with this. I
0: think persuasion is not tried very often, actually. And if you look at most so-called political essays online, you'll see that there's not even a thought of persuasion. There's just a thought of giving meat to your own side. Yes, most people are quite irrational and they're not... That's susceptible, and or at least if you measure that by the comment sections of, some of these articles, you're really not targeting those people. The unmovables. There's a certain number of movable people, and people who are interested in hearing different ideas, and interested possibly in being persuaded. I think that actually is more common than we think. It's just a hunch. Regardless, this sort of an ecosystem or a environmental concern like you don't want to be putting toxins into the environment and that's really what most political discourse is it's you're evil your positions are unacceptable you're a bigot you're anti-american whatever you want to call it and that sort of rhetoric ultimately is directed towards one place which is violence so you know ideally even if you think almost no one is really susceptible to persuasion you model that behavior you model a better sort of political discourse because it's cleaner, it's biodegradable, (laughs) it's not toxic to the political environment. That's the way I think of this.
3: I accept that. I appreciate you saying that. I just point out that if the political system has become simply moving pieces that are immovable, intractable in their position, then the notion that politics is the art of compromise It becomes a numbers game, and the way that you get your numbers is essentially through violent means, which is to say, you manipulate the legal and the political system and and all that just to get more numbers on the board, because it's not really about who those people are, because you're not trying to get individuals and personalities, you're just getting some placeholders for an ideology.
2: Not to grind a saw, but this is where I want to bring up again this idea of a public good, where it's the good of the system, the good of the institutions, right, where you understand that those institutions form a frame in which there is a lot of disagreement, but the institutions protect the form of that disagreement from becoming pure animus and descending into violence. And what I dislike very deeply about recent trends, gerrymandering is one, but is a contempt for the idea of government, a contempt for the idea that there is a structure in which to have the space for these kinds of conversations and, and representatives to talk about what we ought to be doing in our government to make it work for the members of our society and that that structure is worth preserving and the thing is we don't have laws for the most part about that structure a lot of that structure has to do with the values that we have within our government and what we think that government ought to look like and be doing and am more disheartened than not when i think about what just a contempt for the idea of government that seems to be often Maybe it's there on the left too, but I feel like it's part and parcel to the rhetorical term for limited government really just means I don't like government. Government is a four-letter word. And that, I think, just infects the whole notion that we can live together and that there's such a thing as living together well and that there are institutions and structures worth preserving so as to make that happen if we think of the
0: worst actors on the other side and their worst sorts of motivations and yeah we we can always think of that person who whatever sort of political grain of truth that it came out of for them it's just become a paranoid like you know i hate government or government is evil or something like that that happens and we all know you know that we all know there are lots of people like that but i don't think that should dissuade us from seizing on whatever grain of truth that paranoid or irrational state of mind comes from, which is just the fact that there's a debate to be had about the extent and size of government and what its roles and responsibilities are and how minimal or how maximal it should be, that sort of question. So you can always backtrack from the irrational, infuriating, irrational bit back to something that should legitimately be talked about. And that's what I think we... We're better off ultimately
1: doing that. Discussing the rhetoric of this, I mean, you were discussing the difference before between writing something in an email thread to convince some specific people you know, your relatives of some political position— versus speaking openly to the world and trying to make the world a better place by convincing more people of this thing. Like, I'm comfortable in this format where really I'm talking to you guys about something, and there's always the thought of the invisible extra person in the room that is the audience, but that's quite different from speaking out to the open air in the manner of a pundit that is really trying to sort of convince the wider world of something. And I guess I do believe that rational persuasion at least is something that's worth trying with an individual that you have some other reason to care about that you can't just flee from. So you want to reach some accord, but accord with the masses is simply not possible.
2: But... Punditry isn't the same thing as being a politician or even being a champion of a cause and trying to persuade a group of people or enough people to agree with you. I mean, I don't think that the Federalist Papers, by and large, were punditry. They were persuasive. They were making an argument. They were trying to convince the public or at least the people who would be making decision about the structure of the Constitution to vote and understand it in a certain way. But they're intended to be persuasive. And I think that maybe this is, this goes more to fuel the fire of the idea that in some deep way, the left failed in this by not engaging in their side of the argument properly. But like in Wisconsin, right? When Scott Walker was elected and particularly early on, right away in his government, first, you know, three or six months, he made this just full on assault on public unions in Wisconsin, which ultimately ended in, in them being legislated out. And there was a big recall against him on this basis. And one of the huge problems with that recall effort was it really focused on he's making this attack on unions, right? And collective bargaining and stuff like that without making an argument about the, all the good reasons why we should have unions, why they have them. And also admitting and talking about The problems that unions have had since their glory days as they get older and older and they exhibit some of the same deficiencies of old institutions that are merely preserving themselves rather than acting for the, in in accord and in line with the reasons they were developed in the first place or talking about Public institutions. And rather than saying the response on the right often for the failure of governmental organizations is they're not enough like a business and they're not, you know, we're going to solve that with privatization and we're going to bring in people and they're going to make deals and stuff like that. When really the problem is that they're not being run and acting in accord with a mission to do the activity they're supposed to be doing. And Typically, that mission is not one that isn't aligned with profit and privatization. It's a different motive, right? And the left hasn't made that argument. He hasn't made the forceful claim that the goods of the private sector aren't aligned with the goods of public institutions, and there are differences between them. There are good reasons not to have private prisons, right? Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, and like Seth's pragmatic talk about abortion. Look, you know, you could argue with abortion opponents. And say, if you really want to reduce abortion, let's cooperate, and we can cooperate on birth control and other things. I know there are obstacles to that, but there are pragmatic arguments to be made where you actually persuade people. And I think, you know, what did politicians or anyone who wanted power study in the time of Plato or Saint Augustine? Or they studied rhetoric, and rhetoric involves both strong appeals to emotion but also strong appeals to reason. And I think we forget that that actually works. Like That combination (laughs) is actually really, really formidable. What we think of now as persuasion, I think some people do think when they write those web articles that they're being persuasive. But I think our model of persuasion is manipulation. We think it works almost like advertising. We're not concerned when we write one of these political articles with the opposition. We don't imagine that the opposition is persuadable in the first place. We just think we're going to rally up our own base. We're going to find free floating particles that don't have any polarities yet and we'll give them their polarity if they happen upon our piece of writing. But I think there is a larger place for real persuasion, real rhetoric and the classic positive sense of rhetoric in political society. And uh, people who discover that sort of thing, I think they would discover how powerful it is. So I'm not uh, advocating this kind of Pollyannish idea of let's pretend people are more rational than they are, more persuadable. Ultimately, if you're going to do politics, you have to have the idea that some people are persuadable and
1: can be reasoned with. Well, there's also the difficulty of the degree to which political rhetoric relies just to connect this to something we discussed before upon expertise upon judgment calls. So one thing that I was always very uncomfortable with in hearing the debates and things is these assessments of foreign policy and how we've been doing. Like, if I didn't know in advance the political persuasion of someone and they're saying, well, you know, Obama was really weak here. He's, he's so weak. And what a bad deal we got in this area." Like. I don't have, maybe again, this is just a matter that I don't read enough of the relevant articles to to sort through the opinions and feel comfortable in this arena in the way that I do feel in some other arenas that I'm better read in. I very much feel like this is where you might get the whole, well, it depends where you get your facts from, or it's a post-fact society or something, because it's these people's diagnoses of whether it's in foreign policy or why is there so much crime around, you know, what in the debates when Trump was just bitching about just all the the obvious problems there are, just there's the inner cities are, are doing poorly. You would have to get very wonky. I would say to present an actual argument for these assessments and the political arena in some ways is not amenable to that sort of detail and precision in argument. So it leaves people which group do i believe in who do i whose word will i take for it which group of authorities am i willing to sign on with so it just makes me especially frustrated about this kind of communication
0: yeah this is where i disagree again because when we think of the wonkiness of that and how boring it can be and some people associate with that that with clinton that's because you sort of you sever the emotional appeal from the appeal to some sort of fact or statistic or argument, something like that. But those two things need to go together. Reason has, you know, to be made palatable, there has to be some kind of emotional element to it. And I actually do think you could get a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm actually astounded by these debates, how bad they are. I mean, you got to... If you look at English political debates, you'll see how much more talented people can be (laughs) when they're having debates. Yes, you can introduce a lot more wonky kind of data stuff. They can always question the source. And, you know, of course, today you can always point them to a source. You can always just say, look it up on the web or, or whatever but I think ultimately there's a question of credibility that comes from rhetorical talent, appeals to emotion and other sorts of rhetorical appeals that make people interested in your facts.
1: It's easy to point out that things are less than perfect, but for Clinton to have responded to these you know, blanket denunciations of how bad things are in urban areas, you'd have to say, well, you know, actually the reasons for, the, or, or you know, how bad things are off for people losing their jobs to mechanizations, you'd have to then, instead of just saying, it sounds like the response should be no, actually things are good. Well, but if people are hurting they're not going to buy that. So you can't say
0: that. That's no, you always acknowledge the grain of truth in the other person's position. That's rhetorical jujitsu. This is and that's what's so powerful. If you know what you're doing
1: and say, but this, the reasons for this problem are systemic and complex and start, you know, laying them out. And, yeah, and you know, it, it didn't actually matter who is the president, whether jobs are being mechanized or the forces of globalization or, you know, just giving some more actual yeah. background about this. It's just the particular forums. Would this be covered? Would this... Uh, it seems like there's just no place for that kind of discussion. It, it can
0: be done in an interesting, compelling way. This is, I mean, I really do think it can. And also, the other part of this, even if people are confused about how to evaluate your arguments and where you're getting your facts from, what you're doing in those situations is you're modeling a state of mind. You're modeling and a state of emotions. So instead of reacting and calling the other person's names on the one hand, or instead of going to kind of a reason extreme and saying, but no, you're wrong because of X, Y, Z, and blah, blah, blah. Even in the most outrageous hyperbole or metaphor, if you grab onto the grain of truth and you illustrate that you understand the point of view of the people who already associate themselves with Trump and then you gradually walk them towards a different point of view even if they think that's all BS they can't deny the state of mind that you're modeling and I think that's part of what rhetoric is about they can't deny your integrity now there's a lot of people who deny that I mean look at Obama yes you know he sort of is a model of this in some ways, although I think, like any American politician, he could be way, way, way better at it. We think Obama is great just by our, our own standards. But he's a model of a reasonable, really reasonable person but who can appeal to, to audiences, But and, and yet he got so much vitriolic resistance. On the other hand, he won two elections.
1: He was good at that. Just an example, I, there was a, a speech in particular within the last year where he responded to the point of, why don't I use the term Islamic extremism? Is that Islamic terrorism? Why well, I don't call it that. And I think his delivery of that meets all the criteria, it hit the emotional points. It's of course we don't want them to own the rhetoric and for us to declare jihad back to them, essentially. We want to deny them the dignity of their own description of their struggle because they really don't represent all of Islam, etc. You know, it's not a very difficult case to make. But yet did him making that case and really again and again, did that alter one iota how the other side would respond to it? The fact that they kept and are still making that same accusation as if it had never been answered. This is what is depressing about the whole thing. There's a certain segment of the
0: other side, yeah, that actually is
1: unpersuadable. Or will not be reached, will not listen, will not have witnessed that speech. As you said, these people are not keeping up with politics. They're certainly not watching the latest Obama speech. So it like doesn't really matter what you say because they're not going to listen to you in the first place. Right. But I'm just saying there are people who do matter and are
0: persuadable. And (laughs) Obama's record with elections, correlations and causation, but it's undeniable. He won two elections with his style, with his
1: very rational style. As a way of starting to wrap up, at least from my end, I came into this asking, in general, what are the kind of questions that we've been asking in these political episodes? And I came across three basic kinds of questions. So then trying to relate those questions with the immediate, you know, what do I do as a citizen? What should I actually do? This whole episode was inspired as, as a sort of a, well, what good is it to study philosophy? You know, one of these, one of these, what's the practical upshot? I mean, I find all these topics that we've studied even if it's just umpteen variations of the social contract theory in history, just interesting in themselves. Like, and if that was all there was to it and there was no practical application, that would be fine with me. But just to stop every once in a while and, and explicitly ask the question of what is the practical application? So the first question, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in? What would be our utopia? This this I thought was, you know, in reading The Republic as my first piece of political philosophy in, in high school. I thought was the primary thing. On the other hand, when you try to then relate that to your life, well, you can think about these things. What does that mean for your action? I mean, I'd like to live. You listen to our new work episode where pe- where people aren't slaves to labor for their lives. Well, so what am I supposed to do about that? I could I could do some limited amount of preaching of that, but I've expressed my frustration in this episode in this discussion of part of that of, of trying to be a spokesperson for that view for a, a few months. I created the YouTube channel for Fritchov. I did a bunch of interviews. I went on some different forums and tried to pitch this and just found it quite frustrating such that I that sort of trying to convince masses of people of this thing that to me seems sort of obvious is a fundamentally unappetizing thing for me to to do. Of course, because I have this recognition of of the kind of it, it has a lot to do with what kind of life I want to live, so that has immediate consequences for, you know, what kind of works st- structure I've arranged for myself and etc. Anyway, so there's a, there's all that kind of question. Do you end up being a, a protester? Do you end up being what, – what do you end up doing? The second group was the social contract theorists, which just – the practical upshot just seems to be like when we talk to other people about – What kind of crap do we legitimately feel like we should have to take from government? A lot of this has just been the people who consider themselves philosophical that actually appear on the stage of political life are people like Rand Paul, who have these, I think, mistaken philosophies. You know, the the people that are on my side are less ideological. They're more, let's build some general consensus and work toward the general good and be sort of pragmatic about that and and not get too hung up on the particulars of whether rights are natural or only socially agreed upon. Like most of that doesn't matter for the kind of stuff that we actually want to have happen. So it's studying philosophy, political philosophy becomes a matter of refuting people that then arm themselves with a philosophy. They're like, this is the thing, you know, that we have the same thing about stoics, the sort of distaste that I sometimes have for people who just like feel like they have this recipe that they've figured out for how life works and, and walk around feeling superior to everybody else. And then the third type was these group psychology, sociology, economics, political science discussions, episodes when does democracy break down all that all that kind of stuff and of course those analyses are interesting in themselves and can have some indirect effects on how i would actually act but for the most part it's a matter of like we've been doing today like how am i supposed to make sense of what has just happened that doesn't necessarily affect my action but it might affect how grumpy i'm going
3: to be about it anyway so that was my agenda anybody want to respond to any of those individual points or or just give your own closings or whatever so this conversation went about the way i was expecting and that doesn't mean i'm pleased with myself by any stretch of the imagination you know in trying to get a sense of what philosophy means for political discourse i think the readings that we had done recently they gave me a framework for having a conversation we have categories we have terms that we learn from philosophy about political economy that makes sense but i fear that just in the same way that Wes points out that rhetoric, if you wanted to become a politician, you study rhetoric and the historical tension between rhetoric and philosophy in the political sphere. Rhetoric wins. I also don't turn to philosophy for solace in this space because I don't think it helps me understand it. I know that I'm full of shit, and I know that I'm speaking irrationally and from an emotional place, but I also recognize that I'm on the side of compassion and i'm not blindly supporting blue versus red or democrats versus republicans i genuinely despise what i see republicans do and i am disappointed that even though democrats are supposed to share my ideology i didn't feel like they i don't feel like they know how to fight anymore for that but i also recognize that i don't really know what i'm talking about in this space without a text I'm as ill-informed and as adrift as anybody else. So if you want to get after me after this podcast, if you want to come after us, then if you can come in with the same attitude that you're just as full of shit as me and we can have an attempt to persuade each other and treat each other with some level of dignity and courtesy, then I'm all for it. But I thought you were going to say a (laughs) shitstorm. But for my part, I'm not going to turn to philosophy. I'm turning to history. I think I don't need the solace of theory. I need the solace of analysis of the empirical past so that's where i'm headed right now and politically i think i'm just going to start spending my time supporting lost causes (laughs) not lost causes sorry it doesn't make sense for me to have arguments about abstract principles or grand political gestures i think it's time for more action and it's time for me to just start learning about and acting on behalf of people who don't have power or people who are marginalized. That's kind of where I'm at in all this. So I think philosophy is
0: actually enormously useful. you know. And I think if people were better educated in philosophy, the public discourse would be better. And I think we'd all be better off for it. And I think one of the fundamental things I take away is the importance of what I would call Socratic ignorance. I think that's sort of the fundamental philosophical political lesson is that we all ought to be a lot more agnostic than we are. And that includes an agnosticism about other people's motivations, about whether or not we want to characterize those motivations as evil or good That includes an agnosticism about, you know, what is good and what is right. And it even includes possibility of sort of a methodological agnosticism, even about what's obviously good and bad, you know, the ability to suspend your instinctive feeling that murder is wrong, for instance, just to do that at the level of thought, to think terrible things, to think dangerously is in a way I think actually morally necessary And this is what I think Nietzsche meant by living dangerously. You have to actually allow yourself to have terrible thoughts for the sake of intellectual freedom and intellectual honesty. And that the unwillingness to do that actually leads to more problems than not. Sticking to sort of a rigid, moralistic framework – is in a way dishonest. And so this kind of relates Socrates and Nietzsche to Freud. We often, we don't really, when we think we're operating in the realm of compassion, for instance, I think we are deceived. I think often we're operating with aggression and vengeful feelings, for instance, when we think we're operating compassionately. So, are you talking about me? No, I'm not. This isn't meant as a criticism as you because I would have said the same thing. I'm just saying this is self-critique because this is the way we all think. But I, I think in general, I try not to assume that I actually have such great motives. Do <laughs> you guys get the general idea? Sort of a agnosticism about one's political views and about one's motivations. So when I talk about persuasion and genuine persuasion and the kind of use of rhetoric in the positive sense. In a way, that means something therapeutic. That means trying to, let's say, sublimate, recognizing that there are a lot of dark impulses involved, even when I think it's when my position is just about the good or what's right, that there actually is a lot of dark impulses that feed into that. And then trying to sublimate that so that I actually live up to the more ideals to better impulses as hard as that is and then and never to be certain that I'm actually succeeding at doing that there's a lot to not acting there's a lot to inaction and there's a lot to impotent navel gazing you know it's a very kind of self-satisfying sort of account I'm giving here right because it lends itself to the sorts of things that I like to do instead of going out and actually doing things that make a difference but yeah, so that's a plea for the role of open-mindedness and, and the way philosophy can help us with that and the possibility that that actually could have profound practical effects on
1: our politics. So Wes, I think you just thought of a good title for your spinoff podcast,
2: Impotent Na- <laughs> Naval Gazing. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Impotent Navel Gazing with Wes Alwin. You call it Ng. Uh, Dylan, you have anything else? Like Wes, I think that thinking through political questions and how we structure our governments, and the ways in which individuals are related to each other and the communities that we're in and what kinds of things are in tension there and different ways in which they get resolved and thinking through the explicit cases of how those different structures work and what habits and mores and laws they foster and encourage and which ones the characters of us as individuals and communities, those structures dissuade. That all is partly political philosophy. It's partly sociology and psychology, and it all gets wrapped up together. And I think it does go a long way to informing us about how to think about politics and political life and what to say about it and, and what we should do next about it. I would underline the way we talk to one another matters and also the way we listen to one another matters, and I'm not sure exactly what to do about it because that aspect of things is really it's really cultural and it's born of habits of interaction and it's the kind of structure that you don't build by writing a constitution or legislating it. It's the it's a structure that you build by living with it and participating in it and insisting that we maintain those unspoken rules and habits and defending them and arguing for them or arguing for revision of them, you know, as the case may be. I guess like a lot of people, I don't know that we're doing a very good job of that. And I'm as guilty as anybody, I think. Well, you are a a
1: measured and generous thinker and speaker. And we could all be doing that with each other and giving the other side the benefit of the doubt, but we're in the bubble. We're talking to people in the bubble. I'm grateful for when our conservative fans do speak out and try to explain what we've got wrong about some particular point or the fact that we can take certain things like Burke's conservatism and be quite sympathetic, you know, give a pretty sympathetic overall treatment as opposed to Nozick, who's simply making a mistake, and Ayn Rand, who's worse than terrible. I feel comfortable with the way that the generosity that we extend, even though we're flipping sometimes in our own habits and our own ambivalence in the way Seth was talking about. And now I'm just talking shit because that's the mode I'm in. But then I can back off and be critical. And, you know, this is all presenting a fine model, but it's difficult not to feel frustrated in light of events like what has just happened, that all that talk didn't produce the outcome that we wanted and seems to never do so because most people don't talk and don't listen.
0: By the way, I'm the worst offender in those early podcasts. Whenever someone says, I'm not listening to you anymore because of this, I mean, it's, it's usually almost always something I said. <laughs> so I have learned. Because you said that Rand Paul was named after <laughs> Ayn Rand, and he, he's not. He wasn't. I don't know about that. But anyway, I really regret that, actually. I have learned my lesson about that. It's unproductive. And I used to be one of these people, I mean, I used to put so much Republicans racist crap on Facebook. I mean, I got unfriended by people. There's nothing constructive about that.
3: I agree. And here's the thing, I know that this is all being reinforced by the stuff I get fed when I'm looking for news. I don't even know what to trust. I don't know where I can go. I would love to make a rational reasoned judgment based on facts I don't know where to find them. I have no idea what news sources to even look at. I have no idea if what I'm seeing is real or fake. And that's maybe the most unanchoring and terrifying thing of all.
1: Really? You don't think that major accredited news sources are generally going to be more accurate, even if occasionally some horrible spin creeps in over time? That It just sounds like you bought into the false equivalence of... The liberal media and the conservative media and it's all bankrupt. There are journalists that actually do research and there are those that do not.
3: I know there are some and I know there are places that manufacture news, but as Wes said, every time you open an article, the slant is so heavy it's hard to tell whether what's being presented to you is op ed or fact in a lot of in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know. I don't believe that I can trust and I don't mean in terms of like truth and falsity and you know manufacturing, but just I don't know that I can trust any even major media outlet to be presenting me with stuff that's originally researched and fact-checked versus not necessarily manufactured, but just you know shared and syndicated based on the as part of the news cycle. Where do you go to get somebody to say, here's what actually happened? here's our analysis of it. Or here are the facts that we're able to discern, and here's our analysis of it.
1: All right, well, that's going to be our role in 2017. And we've given a good start here. Everything that's been said on here, 100% factual. It's not op-ed. There will be no fact checks at (laughs) PEL.
0: Nor are we fair and balanced.
1: Well, thank you guys all for doing this. Especially Seth, who had a cold and
3: and emerged from his sorrow about the election to have some things to say. I'm sorry I inflicted it on everybody. (laughs) Nothing to
1: apologize for.
3: If anything, this is a validation of all of the work we've done in the last seven years or whatever, how we're able to sublimate all this stuff and be generous and and honest and and faithful readers of texts. All right.
1: All right. Folks should go to com. go to our Facebook page, respond to this. Not just being picky about some stupid thing that one of us said here, but just, you know, is this the kind of episode I'm sure all our international fans are just like, oh, more American politics. I don't give a shit about this, but (laughs) get back to talking about Montaigne, somebody. Yes, we'll do some more of that later. Yeah, I think we can do one of these every once in a while. We've been talking about in 2017 doing some more popular culture stuff, kicking a lot of ideas around. But as always, those ideas compete with lots more ideas that have been vying for a place for three or four years now. So it seems like any change Survival is always... of the ideaist. <laughs> any change is always slight and maybe even momentary. I was determined that I was going to record a new song... ...to reflect this most personal of episodes, but it did not happen. So I will pull again on one of my interviewees for Nakedly Examined Music, Bob Manor, from the Madison, Wisconsin band The Getaway Drivers. This is a song called Better Days from their 2015 album Bellatopia. I think his approach toward roots music and toward life presents a good model toward bridging the divide between our various political factions. The operative word, of course, being compassion... I hope you'll check out my interview with Bob on Nakedly Examined Music number 11 at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night.
4: Good
3: night. Good night. Rolling
4: down on
3: Sycamore
4: After stepping out this jealous door I had an so town Nothing's gonna get me down no more, no more And I'm sucking in the nicotine Flicking ashes out into the street and I'm filling up the tank again I got my ticket to the end Of the world as it begins and oh, I've had enough Of the same old roughed up And oh, there's better days in it just up this road Gonna say goodbye to all the streets Cause you never cared that much for me now the rain and wind are my best friends they see me through it till the end Until the end Until the end, Until the end.